Chambliss. I'm a professor of English and a core faculty in the Consortium for Critical Diversity and Digital Age Research, or CEDAR, at Michigan State University. I'm also the Val Berman Curator of History at the MSU Museum, and I will be your host for this episode of Every Tongue's Got to Confess. Every Tongue's Got to Confess is a podcast designed to document the dynamic discussion about education, enterprise, and institutions, and activism intrinsic to the ideology that found Edenville and shaped its most famous daughter. The purpose of this podcast series is to explore issues facing communities of color globally by listening to the voices of attendees at the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. Founded by the Associated Preserve Edenville, the Zora Festival has long embraced an educational aim inspired by Zora Neale Hurston's celebration of Black culture and life. This production is a joint project between the Association Preserve Edenville community, Michigan State University, and the University of Central Florida. During the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities, Amy viewer Holly Baker talked with Dr. Kenitra Brooks in Maitland, Florida about Afrofuturism. Dr. Brooks is the Audrey and John Leslie Endowed Chair in Literary Studies in the Department of English at Michigan State University. She specializes in the study of Black women, genre fiction, and popular culture. She currently has two books in print, Searching for Cigarettes, Black Women's Haunting of Contemporary Horror, and Cigarettes Daughters, an edited volume of short horror fiction written by Black women. Have a listen to their conversation. Tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to your work in Afrofuturism. I'm born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana. So New Orleans is often seen and spoken about as a city of the dead and a city that's very comfortable with uh, the idea of death, but also the idea of the transitions of death and that death is not an end. And it's always been... um, you know, I just became a horror fan uh, very early on. It was very easy to do that in, in New Orleans. But also, you know, I'm a second generation blurred. So my dad was into comic books. My aunts, his sisters got me into all the like cheesy horror movies from the 80s and these sorts of things. And so it just snowballed from there. So anything like supernatural, anything just sort of like odd or weird tales, all those sorts of things. Like I was reading scary stories, telling in the dark when it was an actual book before it was a movie. <laughs> um, so all those sorts of things have just always appealed to me. And I just found a way to do it as part of my job. That's awesome. And you being from New Orleans now, uh, definitely makes sense. Your <laughs> so um, how do you define Afrofuturism? Well, I look at it and a lot of people look at it in terms of the idea of Sankofa. What I always push back against, because I think there are so many different elements of Afrofuturism, but I always push back against the idea that it's only about black people in the future. That what it really is, is a theory of time. It's a theory of time that talks about the past, the present, and the future all existing together, time being circular. It's a specific view of time that works against the linearity of time that's so, um, that Westernity believes in. And in that sort of conflation and view of time, 
there's also political possibility. There is a cosmological possibility. There's philosophical possibility. There is religious and spiritual possibility because the idea of I refuse to even see the world as you see it is so like revolutionary to me, right? And I consider myself an Afrofuturist because even though I work in a lot of the spiritual practices of the past, um, for me, it's about what do we decide to take from the past? What do we recover from the past? Um, Reynaldo Anderson talks, also talks about Afrofuturism as a recovery project because so much was lost. Then how do we get back and how do we interweave that? And what do we decide to take forward, right? Some things need to be left in the past and that's totally okay. But some things are quite valuable that we've lost. And if we can recover them, then let's do so and let's bring it forward with us as we move on. Well, that's great. That's yeah. A great way to ah, that. Thank you. Um, from your perspective, what does Afrofuturism offer society at this moment? Um, critique, liberation, opportunity? I think all of them. Again, if we go back to the idea of I refuse to see the world in your terms. Like I, not only do I not take your opinion or your thoughts of me and who my people are and who we should be and all of these things into my soul, I refuse to even speak the same language that you're speaking, right? Um, we don't see the world in the same way. And that sort of idea, and especially like with what I'm working on and how people can have worlds within worlds, right? And people can have conversations within conversations, right? And so if you're able to read um, what someone is wearing, if you're able to read what someone is saying, right? If you know the clues and can connect the language together, there's so much secret stuff going on, right? And, you know, even just like my curiosity and, you know, liking to be in on what's going on, I'm like, I have to learn the rules so I can read what people are secretly saying. So um, I think there's the possibility for that. There's a possibility for communication. There's also the possibility for liberation because it's so open. And I think a lot of times, I think liberation is different from freedom. Um, I think freedom, so much of it um, depends on previous narrative and what you were before, right? You know, we were enslaved, now we're free, right? But is that liberation, right? Liberation is opportunity, possibility, imagination, like, you know, and I also think that's why it scares people so much because we like being told what to do. It's very easy for us to follow the rules and follow what's, what we should do or what's planned for us. And it's harder to even begin to imagine what we can do, right? What would we like to do? And that can be intimidating. And I think that's why sometimes there's this, um, I don't want to say animosity, but tension Toward, toward it or, um, you know, is it even possible? Can we even do that? Well, have you thought about, right? But the thinking about it leads to other thoughts and leads to greater understandings. And I think that it can be scary for people. I understand that, that fear, I just don't agree with it. Okay, in your mind, what's the link between Zora Neale Hurston and Afrofuturism? <laughs> so for me, it, makes perfect sense, particularly in terms of her influence on what I do. Again, it's the idea of documenting the past, of 
you know, her work is, you know, one of the recovery projects. Her recovery work at that time teaches us how to go back and do recovery work, but also lays a foundation for us to, you know, a nice little jumping pad for us to go further into the past, um, for us to um, value folklore, for us to value everyday folk, for us to value um, not just, you know, our degrees and specific forms of learning, but also everyone's contribution to um, our project for liberation, you know, and, you know, just the ease that she was able to talk with people, the ability that she was able to just go around and sl slide into the, in the crowd, you know, and she was someone who was dramatic. She was someone who was extra. She was so, but when she was working, when she was doing what she needed to do to get, um, she was respectful. Um, she was understanding and she played herself lesser because she knew that it wasn't about her. Right. I think even um, when she talks about when she undergoes the initiation process to um, in Vodou, right, and she does these things, that takes a certain sort of humbleness because, you know, if you're a PhD or even a grad student or anything else, you're like, I am pretty smart. But you have to be in a place where you don't know anything that's fully going on. You're going into this room where, you know, you aren't told things, they just happen to you, right? And so you have to be open and flexible, but also humble enough that the people you are with know what they're doing, um, that, you know, they mean well by you, but also you're not going to know everything, you know? And I think sometimes we hunger so much for knowledge in ways that that hunger can supersede us really learning, us really beginning to take what's necessary into um, who we are, into our essence, into our being. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> um, how did you come at, uh, across Sorana Hurston's work to begin with? What was the first, do you remember? Um, the Probably, uh, yeah, it was Their Eyes Were Watching God. Um, and I didn't get it at, f at first. I think also, you know, I was in high school. Right. And I think sometimes books have to hit at a certain time. But when I really sort of fell in love with it was um, when we reread it, when I reread it and I was taught by Trudia Harris, who became my eventually became my dissertation director. And she was like, Janie sucks. And I was like, wait, what? I I never heard it, you know, because everyone was like, oh, it's amazing. And Janie's so beautiful and she's a rebel and all these things. And she was like, well, she's disrespectful to her grandmother who only wants to do right by her. She um, wants to, you know, she, uh, with her first husband, she leaves him, right? Just leaves the man when that would have been a really good possibility for her because he was dying soon. Heck, she could have killed him. That was my thing. I was like, she could have killed him. You know, it took the land, been a rich widow, right? Which she winds up being a rich widow anyway, right? Just without like getting beaten, tortured by Jody for years, right? Um, you know, it's like, you know, she wasn't a really nice person. And, and, and that's okay, right? She can be an unlikable protagonist. But sometimes you have to have those difficult conversations that, yeah... Janie's not really someone you would want to be friends with. You know, you got to understand why she doesn't have a lot of friends. You know? Um, so just 
of a different, you know, that Hurston's work was used to teach me a different approach to reading, uh, that you could have these complex subjects um, and black women as protagonists, but also the idea of, you know, should you do what you're told, but also the idea of romantic love and Janie's wish for romantic love. But also, you know, romantic love is a luxury and always has been. And it's a pretty, pretty contemporary idea. Marriage has a purpose. <laughs> it's to get you in a better financial position as a woman, as a film, as within the, these things, right? So, you know, is it bucking the trend or is it sort of a selfishness? Is it, you know, that kind of complexity really, really appealed for, to me. Nice. Yeah. 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 Did that make sense? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Everything you're saying is making total sense. I was like, right? man, I was Actually, like, you're... Janie kind of sucks. <laughs> she does. And I always teach it that way. And I'm like, you know, there's this tension with Janie. And I open it by playing um, Carrie Hilson's Pretty Girl Rock, right? Because I'm like, she's just a pretty girl. That's all she is. And she works and she works her beauty and she flips her hair and all these things. But, you know, she's a little bit of a mean girl, too. Like, you know, she's. You know, she's not perfect, and that's okay. You don't have to like her. You just have to find her interesting and complex. And I think that that opens up worlds of possibilities for people, right? Absolutely. And that's, um, like you said, the nuances you wouldn't have caught at a younger age. So. No, not at yeah. all, right? Yeah. Gosh, no. <laughs> Definitely not in high school. <laughs> no, that's right. So uh, the next question I have for you is... Uh, do you think the Zora Neale Hurston Festival's engagement with Afrofuturism continues Zora Neale Hurston's legacy? Oh, definitely. Again, you know, the idea of Afrofuturism as a theory of time, and I truly believe with what she was studying, with the initiation processes, the processes that she underwent, with her work in Conjure, with her travel and her work in Jamaica, in um, Haiti, you know, she understands this. She understands these these theories of time in ways that, you know, only now have a name of Afrofuturism, right? You know, these are very old ideas. We've just put a new term on them, you know? Everyone thinks they're special. Everybody thinks they're doing something new. You're not doing anything new. She's an Afrofuturist before there was a name up for it, right? And so it's not really of, you know, is Afrofuturism right for claiming, you know, Zora Neale Hurston? It's we're behind the times, you know, we're catching up with her. Right. And, you know, and rightfully so. And, you know, continuously recognizing her genius and how ahead of the curve she was. So, yeah, she was laying the groundwork for it before we even knew it was a thing. What do you think a contemporary Afrofuturist can learn from Zora Neale Hurston and early generations of black thinkers? I think we, we are learning again. Um, you cannot move forward without knowing the past, but also that there has to be, even with all the technological prowess we have, we still have to do the rigor of knowing um, the ways that became before us, right? So my current project is Conjure Feminism, and it's about, you know, looking at conjure and root work, um, the spiritual practice of black Southern and Caribbean women as an intellectual history. I think a lot of times what we're learning from the past is again, as I've spoken before, they were doing all sorts of complex things that we didn't even have the terminology for. It's just that not everyone had the access to it, right? And so for this, 
so much of this project in The Conjure Feminism is about me looking at who is considered a philosopher, why, and why were these women overlooked as philosophers? You know, um, Lindsay Stewart out of the University of Memphis, she sees Zora Neale Hurston as a philosopher, right? She is, um, she's, a, she's a professor of philosophy, and she is looking at her philosophical impact, right? And how does her work with ancestors um, impact philosophy? How does that spirit work impact philosophy? And for me, um, my idea is, you know, how, what was the importance of black women's gardens, their medicinal herbs, the midwives, the conjure, all of those things were mixed together, right? Um, and I think people see, well, black women were in the black church and that's it. Yeah, they were, but they were also doing dibbling and dabbling in other things too, and dibbling, dabbling in other things that we were not privy to. So now it's about how do you then tell these stories and these secrets of black women that we didn't know about, right? Um, and also the question of sh should we know about them? And are there secrets that we shouldn't tell, right? So for me, right now, it's just a knowledge project. Like, I just wanna know what was going on. And I think, you know, so much of it started with me rec now recognizing what my great-grandmother and what my grandmother were doing, right? And now I have the language, and I'm like, wait, hold on. How did you know? Wait, you know? And, um... Like my family was one of the founding families of our church, our very proper Baptist, conservative, missionary Baptist church. And, but also we were doing other things too, right? And that complexity I think is often overlooked. I think again, it's often tamped down because of course these women want to be seen as, you know, good Christian black women. Um, so again, in learning from the past, we're learning to, relearn the past. We're learning to ask different questions. I think we're also learning what is our ethic of the past, right? You know, some things are secret for a reason. And so then we have to have our own moral compass and our own ethical compass of what to tell and what not to tell. And I think that in itself is a whole other journey, right? Even as we investigate um, what our foremothers were doing. When you're um, researching your foremothers, um, what sort of primary sources are you coming across? It's really difficult. <laughs> That's what I because um, I want, I'm trying to look at what did their gardens look like, right? So, you know, um, my first iteration of this talk was called the Conjure Woman's Garden, right? So we know that there were Conjure women. We knew that they were doing midwifery. We look at the work of Charlotte Fett, uh, S.M. Fett. We look at the work of um, Katrina Hazard-Donald. Um, we know that the women were doing these things, right? We know that there were midwives who were healing, but also the spirit work of the midwives and all of those things. But then how are they all working together? How did they also work in that sort of interstitial place where a lot of these women were leaders of their churches? They were on the deaconess board, right? These aren't like really, these aren't just like lay women. These are women who are leaders of their community, right? So they're, you know, these women that we would see, these older women that as kids we would see, they were really complex and had all these things going on that we didn't fully know. And so it just becomes, you have to look at family stories, family histories. 
there are alternative like sources, right? You know, dreams, you know, visions, right? Again, how do you begin to document these things? Because these are also spiritual practices. And these are also ideas of what counts as a knowledge practice. What counts as citing a source, right? So I'm always like, well, can I cite that my grandmother came to me in a dream and just basically told me this, right? You know, um, and then I think that sort of changes things, right? Because, you know, you know, Zonia Hurston was totally like, yeah, so this is a dream, this is a vision, this did this and what have you. And again, how does that then figure into our work as academics as well? Um, because I think sometimes with folklore, folks are able to say, well, that's folklore. Well, that's spiritual practices, right? It's like, no, I want to cite this just as much as I cite Kant, right? I happen to think it's more valid than him, right? <laughs> I believe it more <laughs> than his words, right? So um, then you start to push against the strictures of the academy. And I think that's really exciting, right? Um, but I also think that it's a, also a question of when do you do this work, right? I'm able to do this work now with tenure and these sorts of things. But also I wrote about horror to get tenure. So I didn't really follow the rules. <laughs> and I also think like me not following the rules in that way worked for me as well. It was it was more difficult, but it, it, it really it worked for me in the end. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. I like the uh, innovative way you're looking at things. Yeah. Right. You, I mean, you have to. Like, you know, you can't like dial folks up or whatever, but also you're looking at what counts as knowledge, what counts as valid parts of knowledge. And we're already dealing with um, people's, you know, black women who are dismissed as, you know, ignorant or not knowing, right? Or as I talk about, are so known, no, you know, people know them so well that they think that there's nothing new to find out about them, right? You know, so yeah, I don't think people recognize the secrets that black women keep and they're very, they're very complex, they're very deep and, you know, it's, it's really, really interesting. You're speaking tonight at Seminole State College? Yes. Um, and uh, your, your, your topic is is this lemonade organic? Placing Beyonce and Zora Neale Hurston's legacy and conjure feminism. Yes. Um, can you tell me more about that? Oh, okay. So um, the things that I've been speaking about before is conjure feminism as looking at black women's root work and spirit work and conjure work as an intellectual history, right? How do we then move these women into um, ideas of being philosophers, ideas of creating worlds that are complex um, and that Zora, Again, we're catching up with her. She already knew this. She was already doing this work. She was clear and very, very matter of fact of these are valid things to look at. It was just everyone else. She was just ahead of her time in that way. So what I also want to do is, you know, I really think that Lemonade changed the game in terms of what Beyonce and how Beyonce was taken seriously in ways that she had not been before. Um, also, but also of how she had now had the power to be taken that seriously, right? I think a lot of times, and I, you know, she was paying her dues, right? She she had to, you know, earn her way and earn her keep and get to a point where she could just drop something like a lemonade and it'd be okay, right? And it'd be respected. As well as those who paved the way for her. I think, you know, um, we have to, you know, give due to Janet Jackson, to Diana Ross, 
to Josephine Baker, those women who were doing this work um, and this entertainment work. Um, I also think that she is able to, Beyonce is able to, whether it be her personally or her team, is able to do the research and do the work. They've read Zora, you know, they've incorporated this work. Um, it's very purposeful and intentional what she is doing. Um, in that conversation, I also want to say that a lot of folks say, well, Beyonce's team did it and all those things, but Beyonce hires her team. And I think we have to start looking at um, not just Beyonce, but you know, black women who are doing this work of executive producing, of being creative directors, of you know, knowing who to hire, when and how <laughs> is just as valid as being the person of doing the work yourself, right? And when you have all these moving parts, um, and that's a talent in itself. Um, so of, again, of, you know, shifting the conversation around a lot of times black women who are artists, but who are underestimated and misread. And I think that there is a, a similar vein in that of how these women are underestimated because they're another pretty face. You know, Zora had that dynamism. She was, you know, a, a personality and all those things. And I think sometimes people don't recognize the rigor of the academic that she was as well. The rigor of the writer that she was. And all of those things have to be held in tension with each other. But again, this is another urging for us to see black women as complex beings. So I, I think it's all a part of that trajectory, all a part of that idea. Um, and tonight I'm gonna to talk about how, you know, Zora laid the groundwork for this understanding of the conjure woman and that Beyonce's picking some of that up and moving that forward and embodying the conjure woman in parts of Lemonade. And then I end by talking about how Beyonce is the one who gets the most notoriety for it, but there are other women and artists who are doing this work. So I talk a little bit about um, Akua Naru, um, who is a hip hop artist. She was a Hutchins fellow with me. Um, she was a Nas hip hop fellow at Harvard. Um, the year I was there and also Princess Nokia, who is a New Yorican, um, rapper who's talking about some of these same ideas, but they don't always have the shot. They're not Beyonce, right? So I want to make sure that we talk about the work that Beyonce is doing, but also that other folks are doing this work in really, really interesting ways. Um, she herself, she has a Beji in her, um, in Lemonade, the group, they're twins, who sing in French, English, Spanish, and Yoruba. Their father was one of the um, members of the Buena Vista Social Club. And so that this is opening new ways and causing, I think, contemporary young black women to ask questions that can be uncomfortable for some of people, but I think that are necessary questions and necessary interrogations to um, really start to find who they are and who they want to be and the possibilities to do that liberation work of imagination. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Is this your first Zora festival? This is my first Zora festival. I thought, it, I mean, I thought it was way too cool for me. To come. And I was like, Oh my God, only Zora Neale Hurston scholars go there and whatever. And I'm like, I'm looking at zombies. So I'm like, you know, and they're like, uh, yeah, I really like, yeah, but I want to come down next year so I can really actually enjoy it. 
I like here, I'm like, ah, I gotta go around do like 50,000 things. But yeah, no, I'm gonna come down, bring some grad students too. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I was thinking as you were talking, like you fit right in, you're gonna fit right in. <laughs> really? Like, yeah, like all these dynamic conversations that are going on. They're, awesome. they're so thought provoking and it's like um, motivating and inspirational. Oh, good. Good. And I don't know, you're, you're fitting right in. Oh, so good. I, I would say, I uh, hope so. You're part of the Zora Festival family. <laughs> I hope so. Thank you so much. (laughs) It's been so awesome talking to you. Oh, thank Um, you. Before we go, uh, I want to say thank you for your work um, and for inspiring women. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. You're awesome. Thanks for listening to the Every Tongue's Got to Confess podcast, the official podcast of the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. Holly Baker and I produced this podcast with assistance from the University of Central Florida, the Association to Preserve Evil Community, and the Consortium for Critical Diversity and the Digital Age Research, or CEDAR, at Michigan State University. Be sure to find our podcast online on your favorite listening platforms and subscribe to never miss an episode.